0: Welcome back to the Frontline podcast and part two of our focus on accession to the EU and what it means for LGBTI people in candidate countries. I'm Belinda Deer and in this part we'll be discussing the EU's role in what happened at EuroPride in Belgrade this September. Joining me are former member of European Parliament Mariah Cornelison, who has worked extensively on the accession process, Lenny Emson from Kyiv Pride in Ukraine, Anastasia Danilova from Gender.M in Moldova, and Daniel Kalasic, who worked for years as the Executive Director of Queer Montenegro, but has now become the Co-Director of ERA, the LGBTI Equal Rights Association for the Western Balkans and Turkey. We're also joined by my colleague, ILGA Europe's Advocacy Director, Katrin Hugendugel. Katrin, before we get into talking about EuroPride in Belgrade, can you give us a quick overview of how ILGA Europe works with the EU accession process to advance LGBTI rights in the region?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean so what we what we do on an ongoing basis is really to feed into the EU enlargement process and the reporting. So that goes from I would say a quite Formal exercise of like being in touch with the the national member organisations and really providing input to the to European Commission to DG de- um responsible for enlargement on the what's called the the enlargement reporting, which comes out every year. There's been the a position from the European Parliament as well, and to really make sure that LGBTI rights feature in these reports, and as I said, that they feature um, really reflecting the realities on the ground, not only the legal framework. Um that they also look at implementation and that they also make the links of um you know, for example how partnership, how legal gender recognition, how including um the rights of intersex people is key if you really want to provide a human rights framework, but it's also a lot like really working with the organizations in in those countries um i think and we've we've heard that in the in the conversation there is There's high hopes on the accession process. So often it's about also kind of really sitting down with with a number of organizations and, and discussing how the process actually works, bringing them on board to really make sure they can use their voice in the processes. They can be in the rooms where these things are discussed, where decisions are being made. But also that, you know we can all together be as strategic as possible in using that leverage. So we're not asking for the impossible, but we're pushing for the maximum together that we can actually get from that. So it's really a lot about bringing people and organizations together, informing about the process, but then also, as Danielle said, the messaging around it and kind of bringing the reality of LGBTI people in those countries Mm -hmm. to the desks in Brussels um,
2: where where we see our our key function.
0: Mariah wants to jump in.
2: Yeah, just... Uh, wanted to add that from the side of uh, uh, the European Parliament and uh, the institutions uh, it is also really important and very potent for organisations to work together because what they want is just a a list of uh, very concrete points Uh, this is the situation on the ground this is what we see needs to happen as next steps now and that really helps and I think it's it's vital to uh, start doing that Uh, and this already happens, of course, with LGBTI organizations, but to also start working with other progressive organizations, uh, the women's movement, first and foremost, but also other uh, environmental organizations, for instance, and to, to draft together a list of things that need happening. And this is especially important in the light of the rise of the anti-gender movement, where these uh, conservative organizations and religious organizations work very closely together. Uh, they form a, uh, a united and interconnected uh, movement and we need to do so too. Uh, since uh, stepping down from the parliament I've been uh, also very involved in the, in the women's movement and I think we so need to work together to combat the counter uh, movement unless yeah and, and if, we, if we don't stand in solidarity uh, with each other we stand to lose a lot. Uh, Lenny you also want to
0: chime in?
3: Right. I very much support this thought. So we need to, to work together on this and we need to, to work together with the governments as well, right? Because so, uh, for us, it's very important to communicate to the wider uh, society uh, what actually uh, joining the EU brings to the country, right? As you said before, this is kind of communications issue, right? So I would say that the majority of Ukrainians support joining the EU But when it comes to the rights for certain uh, groups of society, like LGBTQI people, here our citizens stuck. You know, they want to join to the EU, right? But they they don't want LGBTQI people to to gain more rights, right? So it's a very kind of interesting dichotomy and. And actually, our government uh, should communicate this to people. So if we go there, so you you kind of have this rights, but you have obligations as well, right? And uh, the country is obliged to protect uh, the most marginalized communities here, right? Because we're joining the EU, we need to follow the rules, right? And as well, it will help us, uh, you know, to to look at the broader angle on all processes, right? It will help us to actually overcome right movements, right, and uh, radical movements, right, all this uh, movements supported by Russia. And right now, kind of, if we all together put a pressure on the governments to put more sanctions on Russia, right, kind of sanctions on Russia, it's not only just to help Ukraine to win, it's to help us all to win. Because if Russia will be politically and financially weak, Nobody will support this right wing movements. Nobody will support these people who are coming out on the streets of Belgrade, ready to beat the participants of Europe right? So uh, I mean kind of we need to look at the broader angle. We need to unite our efforts and, and we need to go in this together.
0: Yeah, totally. The government needs to stand strong and the Russia geopolitical question is huge. Uh, I'm going to just hand over to Katrin who has something to say and then Danielle also wants to speak.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. I think we're going into two interesting topics here. I just wanted to to add a little bit that obviously around the whole anti-gender movement, there's a lot of work being done, and I think even other other podcasts actually. So, so, so listeners might to to have a look at the, the episodes where we're trying to look more at w- what we can actually do. How LGBTI organisations have been through the work of ILGA Europe, but also through the work of many other organisations, collaborated in different countries with the women's rights movement. Um, you know, we're not always where we need to be yet, but I think important strides have been made in the in the last years, and I think also around messaging, we, we we're Really, kind of learning our lessons and, and and starting to move forward. So it's a it's a complex picture, and I think that's important to repeat as well. The EU enlargement process or the accession process is one element of our, on the one hand, advocacy work and advancing rights work, but also in our implementation. And you know, Danielle was mentioning the changing hearts and minds. Work, And I think that's also important in in working with the local communities, for example, because there will be frustrations along the way. And, And, you know, that kind of neat list that Mariah was mentioning that, you know, the European Parliament and the Commission wants to receive is not always the reality on the ground. But how do we together kind of identify, you know, how do we come up with this neat list, but still make sure that all the other voices are being heard as well and all the other voices actually find appropriate reflection in how we're moving forward on other rights, for example, through other processes, through other parts of our work, is really the puzzle um, that I think will then make us move forward together positively.
0: Daniel, please go ahead.
4: Yes, uh, when we are Now talking and discussing different topics, one thing come to my mind that I just want to share. Uh, I believe that uh, uh, you representatives should also maybe more think about some specific things regarding the, I would now say, Western Balkan region. And the fact that during the last, let's say, 30 years through which the rest of the EU had uh, a lot of political stability and... All of the societies were, you know, went through some kind of a revolution, evolution of the human rights, especially rights of LGBTI people. Uh, Western Balkan region was in wars, in poverty, in a lot of difficult things that these societies in which we are living, we, we had to deal with. And we didn't have time to deal with democracy, with human rights, with other things that are important. So I believed also that um, thinking about that in terms of EU approach to this region is something that should also be taken into account, not only uh, laws, legislatives, and other things that are important that should be done without no doubt and question but also having in mind that democracy in this region and human rights in this region are not something that people are familiar with that much because 30 years in the history of one country or a nation is nothing we are at the very beginning and uh, learning how to live in this new system that was uh, communism not not so long time ago. I was a child at that time. So I remember at least something of that. So I believe that also when we are talking about pre-accession process and EU integration and the Western Balkan region, we should also think about that in terms of approach that should be used in order to make societies to understand. And if you understand, we will for sure be more open-minded to accept something that we should accept in a, in a way. And I will come back to Montenegro at the moment again. 80% of people currently in Montenegro support the EU integration process. But on the other hand, now we are going to political level, not majority of the political parties actually at the moment in the country is silently blocking the EU integration process. And that's where EU, I believe, should jump in directly and said, stop, you should not do this.
0: I find it really interesting having this conversation with activists and politicians who have worked in the Western Balkans region for a while, which is now currently really being influenced by Russia. And then with, especially with um, with Lenny in a country that clearly hates Russia, right? So it's very, it's just such, um, especially after Belgrade Pride, but we'll come to that in the last section of this uh, podcast. It's just such an interesting contrast, and it's, I think it's a really good point that Daniel was making about democracy and and human rights, because we know that that those political parties that are blocking the accession process, a lot of them are very linked with Russia, or at least linked with Serbia, which is linked with Russia. So it's an interesting job that the EU has to indeed jump into the space where Russia is becoming stronger and take advantage of the fact that, well, Ukrainian people at this moment in time very much see the importance of democracy and human rights and their own, let's say, sovereign integrity. So it's uh, it's a really important moment and uh, the EU needs to, to be very proactive and, and see the opportunities and bring people along, let's say, with the thinking and with human rights. Anastasia, so, yeah, then I'll jump to you.
5: I just wanted to add to your first question that I totally agree with Leni, that war actually illustrated for us, even for those people who were very skeptical about same-sex marriages, that we definitely need same-sex marriages. Because now when we have people who coming back, for example, from Ukraine, but who are Moldovans, they come together with their partners, and for their partners, it's impossible to be legally registered here in Moldova so just to stay in Moldova more than three months out of half a year which is crazy because those people were living as families but now when one of them is coming back home she or he or they are not able to stay together with their partners in this country And so that's why for us now equal partnership or same-sex marriages is a priority as well, because we want people to keep their families and to stay with their partners, with people they love to, together in this country and to be protected by legislation by the government and to know that they can stay here together. They can be legally employed, for example, to pay taxes for development of this country, etc. And yeah, as I said, like for many people, it was, oh, it's just it's just a stamp in my documents. It doesn't important. It's just a piece of paper. But now people realize that it's not just a piece of paper. It's concrete rights. And we want to have those rights. And we want people who come back to Moldova because of war, to stay here safe and to have these
0: rights. And yeah, that's also a message for all of those other European countries that don't have same-sex marriage yet. Same, the same issue. Lenny, uh, over to you.
3: Right, I would absolutely second Anastasia in this uh, because like we, we worked with LGBTQ refugees, people who uh, would flee Ukraine because of the war, right? And people were like specifically asking to help them to relocate in those countries where they have a chance to get married or at least to to get a civil partnership because uh, for them, it was uh, a chance to be together as a couple that would legally accepted and recognized by the government, right, at least in, in the countries where uh, same, uh, same uh, couples have a right to marry. So, I mean, for Moldova and for Ukraine and for other countries, is a big issue, so we need to think of of uh, this when we thinking of uh,
0: legislation
3: for equal rights for same-sex couples.
0: Finally, I'm going to move into a little bit of discussion about what happened at Belgrade Pride. So most of us were in Belgrade, sorry, Euro Pride in Belgrade. And Katrine, you weren't there, but you were working a lot on on what happened as a result of the government's banning and then unbanning of the march, as well as the attacks on LGBTI activists after the march. So I have actually a question for both Mariah and Danielle. I'd like I'd like both your opinions on this. Um, so the EU Commissioner for Equality, Helena Daly, was present. Many MEPs were present. But there were still many questions in terms of how they were really able to influence the, the decisions made by Serbian authorities. So what is your take on the role that the EU played around Euro Pride, And what does it say to you about the role of the EU in the region and in relation to accession countries? Daniel?
4: Let's say that I believe that uh, without help and support, uh, let's start from that, of the EU and international community the walk would not happen so i believe that a lot of pressure that is made around the pride in order to have a walk at the least uh resulted in the fact that the eu pride or the walk as a as a final part of the eu pride actually happened so we should not underestimate Or international society including EU should have in mind that they are still having uh, some kind of influence in the region especially in Serbia that is playing around uh, going towards Russia or EU or somewhere in between so we saw that there is political capacity Uh, but on the other hand something that I'm really concerned about, the role of the EU in the region. We know that the EU support is not only political support, it's not only integration process by itself or negotiation process or uh, official requests that the EU have from the countries. There is a lot of EU support to the organizations, to the human rights movement in terms of grants for organizations and um, support to grassroots organizations and stuff like that. That was in the last decade, uh, extremely important for improvement of the visibility of our communities and uh, organizing of our communities and fighting against our joint enemy uh, that is stronger at the moment than ever, I would say, or at least than the last several decades. Uh, But at the same time, instead of having more support of EU to the uh, uh, grassroots movement, we are unfortunately facing the huge decrease of the support in terms of funds, in terms of donor policies, in terms of direct support to grassroots organizations. And I'm really concerned about that. And I'm repeating all the time in the last several months that we are fighting the enemy with unlimited resources. And we are left behind at the moment in the Western Balkan. I would say, and I am dare to say that because that is a fact. If you just take the numbers during the last two years of the support of the EU funds going to the grassroots movements, to the LGBTI movements, to women grassroots organizations, we are left behind. And we cannot, it's not only you. There are many donors uh, behaving in a, that way. Many representatives or uh, international organizations. So I think that we should all open discussion about that. Again, I s- I'm saying we know that we had COVID crisis. We know that we are having war in Ukraine. We know that priorities must be made, but the progress that is achieved should be preserved, especially because, uh, when we look back what happened in, even in the EU, in Croatia, in Poland, in Hungary, anti-gender, anti-human rights, anti-abortion movements, anti-LGBTI organizations, they strike directly when we are weak. They are using the moment and we are weak at the moment. We are really weak. Uh, I'm active in the region for uh, years and I'm following the situation on the ground and talking with my colleagues all the time. And I must say that I'm really concerned because most of the organizations at the moment are struggling to survive. And who will go to the streets to defend the rights? Not those who do not have something to eat, not those who do not have support, not those who do not have services of the support if something happened to them. And I'm concerned about that because uh, there are many strategies in which anti-human rights movements and organizations are using to make us weak. And decreasing of funds in a different way through different channels or strategies is the most effective one, basically.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point about how the funding has has reduced, and then the anti-gender movement attacks. Uh, Mariah, what are what are your opinions on the situation with the uh, Belgrade Pride and the role of the EU?
2: Um, yeah, uh, I, th- I thought, um, yeah, because I, w- I was there in Belgrade uh, in 2010 for the first Pride that they had after in 2001, things had already gone uh, really wrong. In 2010, we actually had a really safe Pride. Um, so we walked and we, we got to the end uh, a station after a very long walk and everyone was safe. But there we discovered that about, uh, I think, 5,000 police policemen um, and um, uh, had a a, a real uh, urban battle with about 6,000 hooligans uh, at the same time. Uh, We as Pride participants never saw one hooligan because they'd just been kept outside uh, this cordon uh, that was around us. But yeah, we heard that they uh, they were going to uh, break through the, the police barriers. We were all put in arrest vans and, and then uh, safely taken outside. So at least uh, at that point, uh, at that point, nobody got hurt. But it was quite traumatic. And uh, I was there again in 2011 and 12 and 13. Uh, all of the, these three years, uh, the Pride never happened because it was banned. But... Uh, from 2014 on, it did take place and it was increasingly safe and it was increasingly less of a problem with um, the the counter-protesters, with the government and now uh, in uh, in 22, Euro Pride and suddenly it's like we're thrown back to those beginning years with the uh, the trying to cancel it and then uh, trying to ban it and then another route and not enough uh, police protection at least going out of the Pride uh, for a number of people, which is bizarre and with the reaction of the EU, what the EU should have done, of course, is say, this is completely and utterly ridiculous. Uh, this is what we were talking about in 2012. We don't want to uh, do this again in 2022. Uh, in but they didn't. And this is partly because uh, EU citizens vote for the wrong parties. Yeah, as I said before, we had Stefan Fühler uh, on enlargement uh, way back when. Uh, now there's a Hungarian uh, from uh, the Fidesz party who supports, uh, yeah, a great supporter of Orbán. Uh, this is not helpful. We suddenly have governments like the Hungarian and the Polish, but also increasingly conservative and uh, right-wing populist governments uh, in uh, northwestern Europe and in South Europe. So, uh, therefore, the EU ambassadors in these countries don't really dare to speak out because they can't get the ambassadors from the different countries aligned on a on a clear and forceful message. So, in in that case, I think the EU is is missing out and. Um, a, a far more forceful message should have been possible, uh, but it's also the way the political wind is blowing in the EU itself.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to add a bit like our thoughts from from ilga Europe on Europe right, and I think the first the, is really what what Mariah said it, it was it was really astonishing in how many exchanges in the run-up to Europride, right, but also during those days up to the march, we had to remind policymakers in the institution of how well established the right of freedom of assembly actually it is, how how clear the case law is, how clear the track record even in a country in Serbia is, and how, as Marais said, re- ridiculous it is that we're now going back, and how often we heard from institutions and from policymakers here, but what does a compromise look like? And how often we had to say there is no compromise on the human right to freedom of assembly. This march needs to go ahead and it needs to be well protected for everyone who's marching. So I think that's the, that's the first point really to say it was, it was so clear an example of a political leadership in a country using the LGBTI community and LGBTI rights to distract from other problems, from other political issues to please a certain voter base and we've seen this in many other countries. So we, you know, in a way to kind of see the positive, the hope is that this was so clear that actually it's opening a few. Eyes, I think, across across Europe. The other thing I just wanted to mention to, to round up is really the tension. We need to, to have on the community and on LGBTI rights and LGBTI people, you know many people came. I think the, the international and European representation at the Pride March was critical for it to go ahead, but also for it to be relatively safe. Um, we did hear about the attacks um, after the march, but I think part of the, the, the protection of the march was due to the fact that there was international attention. But then people went back home. The community is still there and the community is at the risk of the hate that has been stirred through the counter-protests, through political messages. And that risk is very, very real. And the last thing is just linking back to what Danielle said before. It's the kind of waves of attention and support we see certain countries across Europe and, and Central Asia getting at certain moments and then like kind of interest dropping off, And that having, of course, an immediate impact on sustaining the rights that have been achieved, sustaining security for the people. And so, you know, we are really closely working in in our funding needs assessments, for example, where we've already done the second round, is a clear tool to actually raise the awareness of funders on that. You can't fund because there's a political opportunity and then kind of move on to the next one. But there's a continuity that needs to be given to actually support the movement building, to support the alliance building, that's so key, and to support ongoing
4: work. I'm going to Belgrade Pride uh, since the very beginning. I was not there in 2001. It was a long time ago and I was young and not activist and not being out at all, but on the others, every time I was there. So um, my concern is related to something that I was witnessing this year that was uh, some kind of a step back in many, on many different levels. But this year, the police allowed counter-protesters to, to interact with us directly in the front of the police for the very first time. That's something that I'm concerned about. The ban is issued two times before the Pride. It's officially banned. So they were playing a game, and I would say demonstrating the power, demonstrating to all of us that they can actually take a lead in a negative way, absolutely. So uh, the the counter-protester was shouting on me in the front of the policeman at the entrance. My car, window car, has been broken at the same day on the other location. So uh, yesterday, after the TV show here in Montenegro, on regards of the Pride, in which I was mentioning the church, uh, I got a death threat on the Instagram. So, uh, you know, that is something that was not happening for many years in uh, Serbia or in Montenegro. Now, I experience myself, you know, uh, having experience of several threats in a month. So, it's becoming regular. I'm not afraid. I'm not saying this because I'm afraid or anything is part of the work and, you know, something that might happen to all of us who are working on human rights at any moment, but it is change in a negative way. And I'm not the only one. Albanian activists after the Pride has been beaten up. And there were several other cases that are, or were going on. So I would say that, you know, it is, it is a negative change for sure that, that we are witnessing.
1: Yeah, and I think you're pointing exactly to what I was trying to say, and you illustrated much better from your reality. It's what we've been saying in many countries. It's political, religious leaders, when they give space to hate, when they give space to the very hateful counter protests, when they kind of join in that as well, it has an actual impact. Violence in those countries is rising and is actually hitting people, and and I think that's what we need to take much more serious, and what we kind of really need to to see also in the follow up because it's not finished because Europride March has been going ahead.
0: It's time to wrap up, unfortunately. So thanks so much for joining. Um, it was great to hear your perspectives and to have this discussion between the different uh, you know country perspectives as well. And yeah, thanks very much. You have been listening to The Frontline, ILGA Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. To find out more about our guests and the organizations they represent, visit the links in our episode description. And please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts. The more we hear from you, the more activists will gain from our work at ILGA Europe to build a strong and resilient movement for positive change in LGBTI people's lives. Tune in next time when we'll be traveling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for
5: now.